The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. And this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. It's Tuesday, August 23rd. I'm Emily Nicole, crypto blogger for Bloomberg News, in for Stacey Marie Ishmael. Mind the gap. If you've ever found yourself outside of Bank Station on a rainy day in central London, you'll have a feel for exactly how the city came to be one of the world's top financial centres. London's convenient time zone, bustling city atmosphere and impressive set of financial regulations have made it a top destination for banks and financial services companies to operate in over the years. But these global financial focal points have to keep up with the times. The newness of crypto means there's an international gap in the market for legal standards on digital assets. The Law Commission of England and Wales, an independent regulatory body that advises the UK government on reform, has been tasked with getting London ahead of the pack. Today, I talk with Sarah Green. What our proposals aim to do is to say to them, if you do those transactions with these non-conventional assets, you can still rely on English law. And Matthew Kimber. If you try to develop those markets without principles-based rules, you then get a bit stuck later on, I think. To discuss the proposals they've made to Westminster that could solve questions like, who really owns their crypto? And what it means to codify blockchain into the legal system. So, Sarah, what does the commission do? Can you give us a rundown of how it works and what it is that you've been tasked by the government to do on crypto? Yeah, sure. So the Law Commission is what's called an arm's length body, which means very importantly for our work, that we are independent from government. So as you say, we are tasked by the government to look at certain areas of law to make sure that they are fit for purpose, that they are modern, fair and accessible. And so just to kind of lay the the landscape out for everybody listening, what does it look like currently for crypto in English law or even international law? Because obviously the point of all this is that something applied in one jurisdiction can end up being the standard for everywhere. The the main issue that we've really had to tackle and that we really want to solve is that of certainty for parties because the problem as it stands at the moment is we don't have a statutory basis for the treatment of digital assets and so this question that we've talked about about whether they can be treated in the same way as tangible conventional property like phones and like laptops there are no certain answers to that and I mean there are two ways that the law develops in this jurisdiction one is through um, common law so that's the the decisions that courts make and the other way is is through statute which is which is done through parliament and they both have advantages and disadvantages. So at the moment, the developments that we have are common law developments. So they've come through court cases. And the reason that there's still some uncertainty is that that sort of law development 
depends on the particular facts of the cases before the courts. So we've worked some things out, the courts have worked some things out, but a statute, were we to do that at the Law Commission, we don't yet know that that is going to be the outcome of this project, but it's an option. And what that would do would enable us to look at every aspect of uh, digital assets, or at least several aspects of digital assets at once, and so be able to provide a sort of more rigorous and, and thorough answer to parties asking, you know, what will be my legal position if I transact in digital assets? So as I said, that's one of the options that that we could come up with. But what we're really concerned with is just providing that certainty. On that front then, Matt, can you tell us what it is that you propose in, in these proposals submitted to government in July? In many ways, it's quite basic, right? We're just talking about can crypto be an object of property rights in itself? And like Sarah says, that there is kind of a differing level of certainty on that in, in the markets. But we're really trying to clarify first that we agree with the existing case law since like 2017, 2018, that crypto can be objects of property rights. And then clarify if that is the case, why? And like trying to put in place some kind of reasoning and principles behind that, because we think that adding clear reasoning and principles to those kind of thought process is really helpful, particularly from an English and Welsh law perspective. And we think that will also con- kind of contrast with the US American type perspective where it's often led a lot by kind of oversight and regulation and kind of um, behind the scenes discussions and, and settlement negotiations. How would you say the legal system will be able to adapt to these proposals that you've made? I think that the legal system is perfectly able to adapt. But of course, there is the obvious problem that technology changes very quickly and it changes certainly a lot quicker than the sort of different versions of of conventional assets that we're we're used to having. Um, So one of the ways, in fact, the primary way that our work has tried to address this is to make our proposals, um, such as they are in the consultation paper, based very much on first principles. And what I mean by that is, rather than having a sort of exhaustive list of, say, different types of digital assets, so For instance, saying this is how NFTs will be treated. This is how ETH will be treated. This is how Bitcoin will be treated. We've avoided that because, of course, these are the things we're talking about now. But I suspect, I strongly suspect that in five years time, we're going to be talking about completely different things. So the way that we've done it is to say we're going to outline the characteristics of an asset. So rather than putting it in any kind of category, what we're saying is where a digital asset exhibits certain characteristics and has certain qualities, then according to our proposals, it should be treated as an item of property and the following implications um, and consequences will follow. If we're thinking about how we can apply some of those proposals to current situations, so, you know, we have bankruptcy proceedings front and center in crypto at the moment for firms like Three Arrows Capital and Celsius. We just got some breaking news right here that Three Arrows just filed for bankruptcy. This uh, Three Arrows Capital story, this is one of the most prominent hedge funds in the crypto space. The crypto market is falling apart right now. The latest casualty is Voyager Digital. Neither of those cases are going through English courts at the minute. But if they were, Matt, what would you say would be the way that your proposals would assist in that kind of area? The first point is 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 pretty pretty obvious, but it's probably worth making in that the liquidator for three areas capital will have a duty to realize the assets of the company and then distribute them to creditors. So 
that those assets of the company are generally expressed as being the property of the company. And the first question is, therefore, can the assets of Three Arrows Capital, to the extent there are any, um, can, be, can they be constituted as property for their, for, that can then be distributed to creditors? Under the law generally, we think it's pretty clear already, but our proposals make crystal clear that they can be objects of property rights for the purposes of kind of that broad definition of property. There is also a specific interesting point about at what point in time for bankruptcy or insolvency proceedings do you convert obligations denominated in things like Bitcoin or ETH into dollar or pound denominated um dollar or pound denominated kind of sums for the purposes of proving an liquidation. That's a really important point, which will get tested in the Chapter 11 proceedings, I think, in the US for Celsius and Voyager. If we were in a court case and I lost some Bitcoin from you, it would determine at which point the, the value of Bitcoin kind of sums up how much my holdings were worth. So if it was March, it would have been worth quite a lot more than it's worth currently. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So that a lot of the obligations for um, 3AC at least and Voyager and Celsius as well were like loans and they were loans denominated in Bitcoin or ETH and not denominated in dollars. So normally when you enter into proceedings, you kind of do a snapshot. In insolvency proceedings, you do a snapshot as at that date and you say any, any foreign currency obligations are converted into dollars for the purposes of that date. Now the question is, should you do that with a Bitcoin denominated loan as at the date of the insolvency proceedings? Or actually, should you just treat that as an obligation to repay or an obligation to deliver a commodity or deliver a Bitcoin or ETH, which is then not fulfilled by the liquidator kind of as, as the person who comes in to, to run the company going forward, and then you claim damages. So there, there could be a very there could be a very big difference between a Bitcoin denominated loan that was converted to dollars at the date of the insolvency, which just happened to be the pico bottom of the market as well, and an obligation to deliver Bitcoin in the future, which you could claim damages, unliquidated damages for. That is actually playing out in real time in the market because you see offers from people like FTX to Voyager for their assets. And those offers are made as at the date, based on a market price, which is as at the date of um, the, the insolvency. Mm, so so much cheaper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so they, they, they'd quite like to buy the assets at a cheaper price and then realise them in the market at today's price. Coming up, more from Sarah Green and Matthew Kimber on the implications of adding crypto into property law. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So, Matt, can you tell me a bit more about how crypto itself would benefit from the proposals you've made? Probably the key benefit is greater legal certainty for market participants. We think that if you describe that and like describe the reasoning behind that, then you can start to build more complex legal relationships on top. And you already see that happening in the market, particularly with custody services provided by the big custodians like Coinbase, Kraken, um, FTX, people like that. A nascent market for collateral or security kind of 
um, over crypto, which is developing over time. Now, if you try to develop those markets without principles-based rules, you then get a bit stuck later on, I think. And, and speaking of the kind of the global aspect of crypto as well, a senior judge in the UK named Sir Jeffrey Voss recently said that these kinds of proposals are exactly what's needed to put English law at the forefront of crypto and kind of pigeon itself as a as a leader that will set an international precedent for how crypto can be treated legally because as we know crypto doesn't often abide by a single jurisdiction or live in a singular place. Sarah, how do you think these proposals could help set that international bar? That's um a really important question and is one of the main reasons I think that the law commission was asked to look at this. And I should probably put it in context um before I answer it which and, and to do that, it's it's necessary to make it clear that English law, English and Welsh law, is a very, very important sort of legal element internationally in commercial transactions. And I think it's something like 80% of international commercial transactions are governed by English law. And that that's not just restricted to, you know, parties who are based in England and Wales. It is, it is a very popular law of choice for parties across the globe. And that, of course, is very important for us uh, as a jurisdiction and for us as an economy. And um, that's one of the things that Sir Geoffrey Voss has been very um, careful to make clear on this, that what we need to do is, as a jurisdiction, keep that and maintain that preeminence. Because if we don't keep up with the curve on technological developments and meet commercial parties' expectations. And as Matt and I have both said, give them the certainty and the clarity that they need to be able to say, we can do these transactions under English law and we know what will happen if we do. If we don't do that, we're in danger of slipping behind and losing our international um, preeminence. So I think it's it's really, really important, not just domestically, but internationally, to make sure that we can not fall behind and not lose, um, a, well, an export, basically, that is, a, that is an incredibly important part of our economy. And how does kind of crypto fit into that? Why? How will the proposals you've submitted kind of build on that reputation that England has? Well, I think, and we've already, when we've been speaking to stakeholders for this project, Matt listed who who they were at the beginning. You know, we speak to users of these products. We speak to those who are developing the technologies to enable these um, assets to be used and exchanged. And what has been very, very clear to us is that there is a huge demand now from those commercial parties who have historically used English law to govern I don't know, transactions in grain and oil and and all sorts of traditional things that we're all used to talking about. They now want to, or at least some of them, now want to diversify and to do the same thing in relation to digital assets. But they have, quite understandably, all sorts of questions in their minds about whether the same implications will follow from them doing exactly the same things, buying and selling and storing. And that's what our proposals aim to do, is to say to them, if you do those transactions with these non-conventional assets, you can still rely on English law because um, it's also worth saying that the reason English law has that that sort of credibility is that 
It, it's very, very long established, particularly in terms of contract law and commercial law. It's very certain. It doesn't change very quickly. I mean, some people certainly domestically see that as a downside, but it is unquestionably an advantage because parties can can plan their affairs and know that these rules are not going to change with the wind. You know, they know what's going to happen. I think it's worth saying as well that our proposals don't kind of like focus on the assets themselves, like the value, inherent value in the asset themselves or kind of the inherent, even the inherent utility of those assets. But what we do think is really important and, and really useful is to facilitate or to, to get that kind of capital in terms of brain capital, that capital in terms of financial capital, innovation capital, young clever, interested people experimenting in like a, a really facilitative legal environment working with these type of assets. And so lastly on this then, you guys are not just working on these proposals that have come out, there's also future things that you're considering. And one of those that you were invited to consider by the government was the legal status of decentralised autonomous organisations or DAOs. These are the kind of community-led groups that operate entirely online to decide how and when crypto companies undertake certain actions. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So we started our project pretty recently on, on DAOs. It will be a call for evidence. So we ask market participants kind of what they're doing in respect of DAOs. And then it will be followed by a scoping paper, which sets out broad kind of scoping issues around um, around DAOs and what our kind of current view is of, of the, the legal landscape. We're very conscious that there is a spectrum of DAOs, how they are constructed, how they are kind of um, organized. They may have a centralizing element to them, like a trust or a corporation or perhaps a partnership. They may be way more decentralized along the spectrum going kind of right across to the kind of the Bitcoin, like if you want to call it a DAO, or you think about it as a DAO kind of level of decentralization. And we're really interested in one, how market participants might want to structure themselves under English and Welsh law with some kind of centralizing element like trust or contracts or partnership or, or corporation. And two, if they don't want to structure themselves like that and they do want to get to a level of decentralization that we've seen with very few projects, but some really key projects in the market, how would a project today go about getting to that level of decentralization? And what, if any, are the legal consequences of that level of decentralization? Like sufficient decentralization, you might have heard that term battered around in the market. So we're thinking about those type of issues. and. And we don't have any answers right now, but we would be really interested in um, hearing market participants' thoughts on that, both sides of the kind of the DAO spectrum. Thank you both for joining me today. I'm Emily Nicole, crypto blogger for Bloomberg News, in today for Stacey Marie Ishmael. You can find more of my reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal, on Bloomberg.com and on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, we're going to talk about the flippening. Okay, what's that? It's what some crypto fans are hoping for. The day that the number two crypto token, Ether, overtakes the big incumbent, Bitcoin. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. Or find us on Twitter, we're at crypto. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producer is Mohamed Farouk. Associate producer is Ty Butler. 
Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.